following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I want you to imagine that it's two o'clock in the morning and your neighbor calls you and says, can you please come over to the house? My daughter was just killed in a traffic accident. Well, of course you will go, but as you're preparing to go, you're thinking about this neighbor. He is a Christian. He goes to a church very different from your church and he often kind of mocks you for what you believe when you talk about the, the greatness and sovereignty of God or the grace of God in salvation. And his lifestyle has not been one that uh, you consider to be very edifying. You think that uh, his wife has pampered that daughter and he's not been much of a disciplinarian. And beyond that, he's not really been much of a friend. He's been argumentative and at times confrontive. But now he's called you in his pain. And of course, you're thinking, well, yes, what was she doing at two o'clock in the morning on a joyride, this pampered daughter? But as you go next door, how do you respond to this friend who is in Christ? Well, I think Job's response to Bildad in these 22 verses that we've just read show us exactly what the afflicted saint or Christian needs and thus how we should think about others and their situation and God as we would go to them in times of need. Job now is responding here in chapter 19, of course the most famous chapter in the book of Job because of the section that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, in these first 22 verses, he's responding directly to Bildad's accusations. Bildad, as we saw last week, has this cold, clinical description of God's justice. There's no, there's no humility. There's no mercy. Um, uh, there's no compassion. And as he lays out this judgment of God in such a cold pack, he doesn't mention Job by name, but we all know as the readers, and Job knows as the listener, Job is the target for everything that Bildad is saying because Bildad is convinced that Job must be wicked and that the things that have happened to him which defy human imagination are only because he is a gross sinner. Now they keep pounding on that drum. Job keeps responding, but he responds in an ever-increasing uh, wise way. I want you to remember as we work through the speeches, particularly Job's speeches, that we're dealing here with wisdom literature. The Holy Spirit didn't spread out all of these dialogues uh, for us to plow through them and think we're hearing the same thing over and over again. Although in, in the sense of Job's friends, we hear it in an increasing crescendo. But in Job's responses, what we are learning is two very important things. We learn what a believer does uh, in affliction. And it really struck me this week, and I, I want to try to work more on this, um, as I read the Psalms, it seems that the psalmist and that David is echoing many of these laments of Job. They're not in isolation, and they're laying a foundation for a believer's response to God, a believer's pleading with God, a believer's response to his neighbors and to his own situation. 
And of course, the second thing that I constantly am trying to show you here is what we have is a picture, a type of the sufferings of our Savior. You know, we read the gospel accounts, and they're very brief in describing very objectively everything from his betrayal to condemnation to crucifixion, death, and burial. But it's when we get here in Job and, and later in the Psalms, uh, as these men are pouring out their hearts in situations that God has designed to be similar to what our Savior has suffered, they're giving us an insight into the heart of the Savior. So keep in mind, this is God's wisdom literature. So this morning, uh, what I want to show you is, is that um, the afflicted Christian needs a friend to come alongside of him in sympathy and speak the truth of God's word. The afflicted Christian needs a friend to come alongside him um, sympathetically and speak God's truth. Now, we give you this proposition every week. In fact, one of my graduates recently defined this as propositional preaching. And I like that. I've never thought about that title. But that's what we're trying to do. And what you have in, in that sentence that I repeated is, is the sermon in a nutshell. So grab that sentence uh, as I give it to you each week, as, as Pastor Grock gives it to you at night, and recognize that here is a, is a one-sentence summary that will help you recall. Now, we're going to break this out in three points. That the afflicted Christian needs uh, sympathy, not condemnation. The afflicted Christian needs... Uh, uh, God-centered truth, not man-centered truth. And the afflicted Christian needs friends, not desertion. So in the first six verses, I want to show you that the afflicted Christian um, needs sympathy and not condemnation. So Job answers and replies that typical word that we use in the transition of each speech. In verse 2, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me, you're not ashamed to wrong me. Now, then he says, even if I've truly erred, my error lodges with me. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Now, he responds here in two ways. In the first place, he says, why in the world you continue to torment me, vex me, persecute me, with the repetition of the same accusation that God is punishing me because I am a wicked and vile sinner. Now, twice, Bildad has accused Job of being wordy and just trying to overcome them with words. But notice what Job says, that you're tormenting me with your words. You're crushing me like a sledgehammer coming down on a rock and breaking it into pieces. He says, these ten times you have insulted me. Now, it doesn't mean literally at this point we haven't had ten speeches. But this is a figure in the Bible where a specific finite large number is put for a multitude of situations. So Numbers 14, 22, for example. Surely all men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and the wilderness... Yet they put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. It's not simply they disobeyed ten times. It's ten times saying they're constantly resisting me, says God. 
And Job says here, you're constantly, that's what he means by ten times, you're constantly tormenting me. And you're not ashamed of wronging me with your words. So he says, you're beating me up, not with truth. You're not coming alongside. And Job, here are our witnesses. We've spoken to your neighbors. And obviously, uh, you are a very wicked person. No, they have nothing like that. That leads to the second thing that Job is saying to them. And that is, why are they acting like God and blaming him? In verse 4, even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. Now, he's not making a concession here for the sake of argument that, yes, I have, we'll, we'll consider I've done what you've said. No, the word he uses is the Hebrew word rightly translated here in New American Standard to err. It is for sins that are not presumptuous or high-handed or sins that are unintentional. So, for example, Numbers 15. Um, also, if one person sins unintentionally, that's our word, then he shall offer a one-year female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray. That's our word, who unintentionally, sins unintentionally, making atonement for him, that he may be forgiven. Now, now we see that such sins are not, uh, uh, they still must be atoned for. They're sins against the holy God. But what Job uses this word to say, my sins are inadvertent. My sins are not high-handed. I'm not sinning deliberately against God as you accuse me. He confesses, yes, I've sinned. I've sinned with my mouth. I've spoken rashly. I've said things about God. And, and he'll come back to that at the end of uh, the book. But he basically says, even if I have sinned in this unintentional way, um, understand that it, it lodges with me. There's a couple things here. In the first place, I think he means that uh, uh, I've not harmed others with my sin. These have been you know, sins of of my own mind and thought and lust, sins against each of us uh, must wrestle every day. And which leads to the second thing, this lodging with me. He's probably talking here about that wrestling with sin uh, that Paul describes so graphically in Romans chapter 7. The things I ought not to do, I do. The things that uh, I uh, ought to do, I don't do. That is this unintentional sin, this, this wrestling with sin that's inside each one of us. He said, that's the reality. Of, of a believer's experience. That's my reality. And so uh, why are you lifting yourselves up against me? He says there in verse 5 that they're, they're acting like God. Uh, and they're trying to prove disgrace on him for gross sins of which he is innocent. And then this very interesting, puzzling, in a sense, climax to this part. Know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Now, this is a good example of why it's important that your pastors can, to some degree, deal with the languages. Because we read this in the English and we'll think that Job is doing what Bildad accused him of doing, and that is perverting God's justice. Now, he uses the word that Bildad uses to pervert. But here, uh, when he says, know that God has wronged me and closed his net around me, he's not saying that God has acted um, wickedly against him. Calvin says there's a, there's a justice of God that's above the justice of God that's revealed. God is doing something uh, uh, in this, uh, but uh, he's not accusing God of acting unjustly. The ESV puts it better. God has put me in the wrong. 
put me in the wrong. In other words, he's placed me in a way from which there seems to be no escape. It's made clear in Lamentations 3.9 when Jeremiah writes, He's blocked my way with hewn stones, and he's made my path crooked. And there, Jeremiah's not saying that God acted unjustly, but God has fenced him in. There's this perplexing path from which there seems to be no deliverance. And we're going to come back to that expression uh, here in, in just a moment. And so what Job is saying here to his friends is, uh, you've come alongside me, and or you've come at me, and you have condemned me. You've condemned me for sins invented. You've not come alongside me in sympathy. You've not come listening. You've not come examining. And you surely have shown no sympathy as you come alongside of me. And in that complaint, Job is showing us what the afflicted saint needs. Even if their affliction, you're convinced, is because of their bad behavior. That is not your duty or place to condemn them for that. So we heard a few weeks ago from Pastor Groff in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We're not to judge people in that way. That's why I chose the reading in Romans 10. But why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We're not gods. Uh, Job's friends were acting as if they were gods, that they knew the mind of God, uh, that God would take their side against Job, and, and they were condemning him. That, that's never our role. We might even think, yes, you're suffering because of this or that, and that might be completely wrong. Now, there'll come a point when you come alongside someone and you want to help them analyze what's happened, and you'll say, now, yes, this could be because of sin, and you might help them think through that, but you're not condemning them. They have to come to that conclusion themselves. I think it's very interesting in James chapter 5, when James says, if any of you is uh, sick, call for the elders. They'll anoint with oil. If there is sin involved, you'll be healed. But the elders aren't coming to you and saying, you've sinned here and here. No, it's a matter of self-examination. Help in that self-examination. But you don't come... Uh, condemn me, but particularly at the very time of the distress and the attack, you just simply come alongside as a sympathetic friend. You come alongside uh, to listen, and you come alongside not to condemn. And so, the first thing that the afflicted saint needs is sympathy and not condemnation. Now, the next thing that the afflicted believer needs is going to be a God-centered word and not a man-centered word. Now, as we look at this middle section, uh, verses 7 through 12, I want to remind you again what, what temptations lie before Job at this situation. Job knows that he has not sinned in any grievous manner. Job also understands, because he is part of the system, he came out of this, that normally when this happens to somebody, it's God's punishing them. So he hasn't completely escaped from that, though he knows he's not being punished for sin. So what should Job determine about God in this situation? Well, there's two temptations. Both are from Satan. 
The first is, well, I've misinterpreted who God is, and none of this is from God. It is my neighbors, it's the Sabians, the Chaldeans, it's, it's natural calamity. And the other is, well, this is from God, and if this is what God's like, I'm going to deny him. I'm going to curse him. Now, that was the attack, wasn't it? And you see how he's put here between a rock and a hard place? With their accusations, he knows he's suffering. He knows he's not guilty of the things they're accusing him. So either God is not behind it, or God is cruel and not worthy to be served. It's in that context that Job speaks in these verses, uh, 7 uh, through uh, 12, of the sovereignty of God and what has occurred. The sovereignty of God. He has an absolute conviction that all that has happened to him has come from the hand of God. He says four things here. That he is um, deserted, debased, destitute, and destroyed. In verses 7 and 8, he says that by God's purpose he is deserted. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's put me in darkness. He has put darkness on my paths. Behold, pay attention to my lament, to what I'm saying. I cry out for help. Violence. We read the stories of the people uh, in major cities who are being attacked on the street and, and they cry out for help and people stand around and gawk or, or close their eyes and walk away. That's the idea here. Uh, the word violence is the Hebrew word from which we get Hamas, the violent ones. The Hamas, the violent ones have come against him and he's crying out for, for deliverance and he gets no deliverance. He gets desertion. I shout for help, but there's no justice. There's no one that comes alongside of me. And then he speaks of what God does. This goes back to, again, lamentation. He walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's put darkness on my path. So I read part of this a while ago in Lamentations. He has uh, walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He said that I'm in this situation. And basically, there's no escape from this situation. God has put uh, rocks and, and barriers uh, in front of me. And he's given me no light. I cannot see uh, another way out of here. I'm simply locked into this life situation of violence in my suffering. But you see, he says, God has done this. He says, God is the one who has um, walled up my way so that I cannot pass. Next, he says that he's been debased. In verse 9, he stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. Now, Job was the most famous and glorious, reputable, and useful man of the East. There was none like him. But he says now God has debased him. That's what he means by taking the crown, it wasn't that he was a prince, but that he was, he was a nobleman of, of great virtue and, and reputation. And so honor has been taken off, stripped as a cloak, crown has been removed from his head. He's been debased. He's now uh, uh, the shame of all public conversation. And then he's destitute. Verses uh, 10, 
He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. He's uprooted my hope like a tree. He's hopeless. You see, he uses language earlier, the language used about a tree has hope. That those roots stay in the ground. But here is a man who God has broken down on every side. And has uh, uprooted his hope like a tree. In other words, there's nothing left. There's no, no grounds for hope. He's, he's destitute. But notice, it's God who has done this. He breaks me down on every side. And then he's destroyed. In the last two verses, he's also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and camp around my tent. He was the friend of God. God considered him a friend. But how can that be now in the way that God's treating him? He says God thinks on him. It doesn't say that he thinks on God as an enemy, but God thinks on him as his enemy. And thus God has kindled his anger against Job. And then he puts it in military terms, and there's a great deal of hyperbole here. His troops... So here's God's army. Build up their way, have a siege against me, and camp around my tent. <laughs> you see, here's your little tent. And yet God has brought all this force against him. The great siege engines and all of the, of the troops of God, which simply refer to all of the afflictions that he is suffering. So Job describes his suffering with these three, three concepts, uh, four concepts, desertion, uh, debasement, distress, or, or destitution and destruction. And he's right. He'd understand he's right. That this, in fact, has come from God. And he's right to cling to the sovereignty of God as you are in the midst of all your sufferings and as you deal with those around you that God does all things. Now, Job is wrong, and he's, he, he's forced into this by the system of being accused of being punished by God. And so he speaks wrongly about God, doesn't he? He recognizes the sovereignty of God, but he only sees anger. He only sees God coming against him as an enemy. Now, what I want you to understand, if you're a Christian, you might suffer uh, to this extent, but God never comes against you as an enemy. Never. He loves you. If you're a Christian, uh, Christ has atoned for you and brought you into God's family. And so we're reminded that he is not just a father, a redeemer. He is a friend to us, his people. And he's designed all of these things, although some of them will remain in a mystery to us, perhaps even until we go to heaven. But he's designed all of them for our good because he's promised that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So on the one hand, my friends, affirm God's sovereignty in everything that happens in your life. Everything has come from him. But as Christians understand, it's come from him as a loving God. But if you're not a Christian today, I want you to understand that these four things uh, that we have read here, this desertion, basement, destitution, destruction, are in fact true of God against you. 
All that we read here is fairly pale in comparison to the anger of God against sinners and how he moves against sinners with a just and righteous flaming anger as an army that's camped around your life. This is your state. And it only will get worse when you die and you go to hell. But why do I tell you this? Am I acting like Job's friends? Am I trying to rub salt in a wound that perhaps this morning is already very beat up and heavy laden? No. I want you to know this, that there is relief and mercy. That yes, God is acting this way towards you now in order to bring you to wit's end, to cause you to come to a point to dread him, that you then might turn in repentance and faith and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, God, I know I deserve all of this. I am a sinner, but for Christ's sake, save me. And oh, my friend, God never says no to that prayer. Jesus throws his arms wide open. Come unto me, every one of you that is weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so yes, you might be here, but you don't have to remain here. You flee to Christ. But we see that God-centered truth is very important, don't we? Which brings us then. So we've seen that uh, sympathy and not condemnation. God-centered truth, not man-centered truth. And then perhaps what's most poignant right today for us is uh, friendship and not desertion. This last paragraph, he's removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive or strange to my wife. I'm loathsome to my brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, O my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? He comes here to show that what he needs is friendship. What he's received is Desertion. Now, once again, you'll notice that he couches this in terms of God's sovereignty. He says, he, in verse 13, has removed brothers far from me. But that in no way excuses the desertion that is taking place. We don't use sovereignty then to excuse sinful behavior. For we are also responsible for our acts. And so he cries out now in this desertion. Verse 13 is kind of a summary statement. Brothers, close, intimate family members are far from me. Acquaintances, those with whom he had close communion and uh, contact, explained further in verse 19. All my associates, the men of my council, these three amongst others, and those I have loved have turned against me. And between 13 and 19, he explains exactly what's happened. He says in verse 14, my relatives, people of my family, have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house, perhaps 
guests or those who would live within his plantation. And my maids considered me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. The foreigners have lived with him. The maids live in the house. They consider him a foreigner. I called my manservant. This would be his valet. He doesn't answer. It used to be. He would say, John. No, I have to implore him with my mouth. I have to beg him to come and, and help me. And then... Probably the saddest. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I'm loathsome to my own brothers. This is one of the most difficult verses in the book of Job uh, to uh, translate. His wife, his breath is strange to her. She doesn't want to be around him. Uh, the word breath is the word spirit. It could be she doesn't want anything to do with him. She does not want him around her whatsoever. She's already sided to a degree with Satan. She's already said, Job, curse God and die. And now she keeps him at arm's length. Now that can be further uh, intensified by the second half of this verse, which is really difficult, um, uh, where Job says, I'm loathsome to my own brothers. The word is literally to the sons of my womb. And it's used one other time for a man. <laughs> it's not normally used of a man. Uh, but uh, David uses it to speak of his descendant in Psalm 132. Uh, and there's two ways. Either I've appealed to her on the basis of our children that we had together. They're all dead. But that is the tie between a husband and wife that should be unbreakable. Um, or it could be, as uh, many versions put it, the, the children of the womb of his mother and his close brothers. But one way or other, the family that should be around him, supporting him, wanted nothing to do with him. They were appalled. Not simply that they had bad breath. They were appalled. You know, they thought, listen, God has laid hand on this man. And if we get too close to him, God would lay his hand on us as well. Even children, young children, despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. I read an interesting thing the other day in Rob Roy that when the Redcoats were in a particular village looking for Rob Roy, Everybody was quiet and silent, standing on the street. As soon as, the, as they rode out of the city, all the children were throwing stones and, and taunting the British soldiers. And that's the idea here. The children despised this man, although he had never treated them arrogantly. He, he said that, I rise up. He's treated them with respect. And yet they are against me. What a desertion by the very ones. And then he appeals finally to his, his, fr his closest friends. In verses 20 to 22, my bone clings to my flesh, to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you strike me or persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? It's an interesting phrase in verse uh, 20. Bone clings to my skin and my flesh. It's usually skin and flesh clinging to the bone. Uh, it's used one of the time in, in Psalm 102.5. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. There seems to be a picture here that a person is so gaunt and, and, and famished that really all you see is bones. The flesh is but a, a, a silhouette, a veil uh, over this skeleton. But I think he's not talking here physically. When you see the parallel in Psalm 102, he, he says, because of the loudness of my groaning, 
That spiritually, he is nothing but flesh and uh, a skin, um, bone clinging to flesh and skin. He's undone. And so he, then he only escapes by the skin of his teeth. Do you children have skin on your teeth? No, you go to the dentist to make sure there's no skin on your teeth. No, so what does it mean when we say he escapes by the skin of his teeth? It means he barely got away. And Job is saying, I'm living at the very edge of all existence. All that's left between me and death is the skin of my teeth, which means what? There's nothing left between him and death. He's soon to die. And so he cries out to these particular friends, these three, humbly. He calls them friends. Now, he's spoken pretty harshly to them, perhaps sometimes a little too harshly, although you surely understand the way they spoke to him. But he calls them friends. He says, pity me. Pity me. Have mercy on me. Show me compassion because God has struck me. Again, going back to the sovereignty of God. So why do you strike me? Why, why do you persecute me? Are you not satisfied with my flesh, devouring my flesh? Do you want this last pound of flesh? Do you want to just to devour me like a monster so there's nothing left of me? That's how he felt. And so he was deserted by friends. We're reminded in this the importance of friendship, aren't we? We're reminded of the two institutions in which God has appointed friendship. The family. And sometimes that breaks down. But the church. The communion of the saints. Because we're made in God's image, we're made to live in society. Not one of us is an island. You might want to live by yourself. Sometimes I like the idea of living out in a cabin somewhere with just my wife. But uh, that's not how God made us. No, we're, we're a community. And that's supposed to take place in the family. And by God's grace, it often does. But for some of us, it doesn't. Many of us here in this room have had just the opposite. But it does take place in the church, doesn't it? The communion of the saints. We are brothers and sisters. And thus, we're able to relish the friendship and the support that comes to us as members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there is an important warning here, and that is you don't make any person your ultimate trust. Not even a husband or a wife, and some of you know that quite well. Not a friend, because to some degree or other, human relationships and friendships will betray us. There's only one place to rest, and that is in our God, who is the friend of sinners. Now, you know that as Job expresses this feeling of desertion, this language is picked up by the psalmist on many occasions. And Job and the psalmist are pictures of the Savior. So the psalmist will write in Psalm 55, For it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. You've been deserted by a friend. You get some feeling for what David's saying. But we know that he's actually here picturing for us, as is Job, our Savior. 
For these words speak almost graphically of him. His own brothers mocked him and made fun of him. One of his closest 12 friends of 12 sold him out and betrayed him. Another close one denied knowing him with curses. And all the other friends ran away and hid. Oh, can you imagine, if you look at it through the eyes of Job, what that did to our Savior? He wasn't built of stone and brass. He had a human nature. He valued friendship. But this was part of his desertion by his Holy Father, that he might give himself in the place of sinners and deliver us from our sin. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. So, back to our proposition. An afflicted saint, an afflicted believer, needs friends to come sympathetically alongside and speak God's word into his life. So go back to our illustration. When you come alongside that person, you don't come alongside to condemn them. You come alongside to weep with them. Yes, you'll have to smother the thought they deserved it. They reaped what they sowed. No, they need you to sit and weep with encouragement and consolation. At some point, they will need to hear of the sovereignty of God. And they'll want to, to say, well, God didn't have anything to do with this. And there's no hope in that, is there? And above all, they're going to need a friend. And not a friend for a moment. No, what people like that need, and, and, and non-Christians as well, are long-term friends. And we want to be long-term friends to suffering friends. We lived in Houston almost 11 years. And in Houston, there was a brilliant uh, trauma hospital called Ben Taub. And if you lived in Houston for any period of time and you had any kind of serious accident, you told the medics, take me to Ben Taub. But it was also a common saying in Houston, if you had a long-term illness, don't take me to Ben Taub. So the doctors at Ben Taub were geared up for emergencies. They could treat it, and uh, that's it. They had no bedside manner, and they had no concern about long-term consequences. That's when you need a, a, a hospital. But as Christians, you must be both Ben Taub and long-term. Yes, you come in the trauma. And you come alongside. But you know, what happens so often, even within the church, is, is uh, you know, in, in a few weeks, we're gone. We, we move on. But they haven't moved on. You understand that. Grief doesn't go away uh, overnight. And people are going to need long-term friends as you get involved in their lives. So come. Come immediately. Don't stay away. Sometimes we stay away because we feel very awkward. Come, but also keep coming. Keep coming. Because the afflicted saint needs a friend, our friends, to come alongside sympathetically and speak the truth of God into their lives. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for your wisdom and for these words that are, in a sense, but faint reflection of your wisdom. And yet they're here for our uh, edification. And so we ask that you will help us to learn from them. 
Lord, if there is anyone here today who is not a Christian, we ask that you would uh, speak to them of the terror of their situation and draw them unto yourself. And all of us, Lord, our situation, help us to rest in a beautiful sovereignty. Help us to learn to be friends, true friends, like our Savior, who is a friend closer than a brother. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.